Restless sleep. That's what she complained about. A restless sleep. The messenger came to me that afternoon with word from my wife. I have had a dream, she said, concerning this righteous man from Nazareth. Have nothing to do with him. A restless sleep, she has no idea. Since that dream of hers, I've had nothing but restless sleep. Even now I know I will lie down again tonight for another, yet another restless, fitful sleep. Thoughts of that righteous man, that Jesus, consume me. Now bear in mind, I did not nail him to that cross. He wasn't crucified by my hand. I went to great lengths to make that clear, illustrating it in fact so that all would see, so that everyone would know I washed my hands of that man's blood. That was just fine as far as the crowd was concerned. His blood be on us and on our children, they cried out. No, I didn't nail that righteous man to that cross. They did. They are guilty of his blood, not me. It wasn't even my trial, you know. Their counsel tried him and found him guilty. Guilty of what? Who can say? I suspect the charge of capital treason was trumped up, a way of calling my attention to the issue, a way of swaying my own judgment, a way of making this into a political case of some kind. I suspect that when they claimed he was guilty of stirring up the people, Disturbing our great Roman peace, that was the closest they ever came to the truth in all of this. The real truth is, they were the ones stirring up the people. They, the religious leaders, I mean. I saw them mingling with the commoners, inciting them to call for Barabbas to be released, stirring them up until nothing but that innocent man's blood could quell their fury. See, I know how that council operates. I've confronted them before. Shortly after I began my time here, I set up the traditional Roman standards all around the city of Jerusalem. You know, circles of gold fixed on wooden poles bearing the image of the emperor. I expected some resistance. To tell you the truth, I welcomed it. I'd heard about the rebellious nature of these people, you see, and I thought it prudent to teach them a lesson. This is Roman territory, after all. It's only right that these folks, like many others all around the world, bend to the powers that be and realize just exactly who's in charge of who. But these people wouldn't bend. For six days, they protested those standards. When I stood firm in my decision, their protest grew even more intense. When I threatened them with violence, they argued more vigilantly. When I threatened their leaders with death, 
They never flinched. I was the one who bent. I was the one who caved. I was the one who gave in. And even that wasn't enough for them. So when I finally agreed to remove those standards from around the city, I sought a compromise by setting them up, a few of them up, a golden shields here and there, not standards, just shields, not everywhere in Jerusalem, just at my own personal residence, and no images, no idols, as they called them. These shields simply had my name on them, and the name of Tiberius inscribed there. Still, they persisted. I was defiling their holy city, they claimed. So they went over my head. They petitioned to Rome. Word got to Caesar. Tiberius himself sent word that I should remove those shields and went on to rebuke me for causing an affront to these people and to their religion. This from the one I was trying to give honor to. Since that incident, things have only gotten worse. The Roman government, at my request, began construction of an aqueduct for the city of Jerusalem. The water supply of the city has always been a problem. Even the histories and religious writings of these people show evidence of that. When their great king, King David, king of the Jews, first conquered the city, he gained access through the water supply. So it stood to reason, at least as far as I was concerned, that these people would learn to appreciate us Romans if I offered them what we do best. That aqueduct was a masterpiece of modern engineering. Beautifully constructed, arches of stone. It carries water, a never-ending stream of it. Clean, spring water over 40 stadia from its source. I built it as a show of good faith, a gift from Rome to them. Uh, When my money for the project grew scarce momentarily, these things happen, I arranged to borrow some funds from their temple treasury, assuring it would be returned. They couldn't abide. The demonstration then that they held as I entered Jerusalem was evidence of that, evidence of their wrath, frustration, anger, tens of thousands of them rioting in the streets. This time I made sure they were the ones to bend, not me. I sent soldiers out into the rioting crowds. And my command, the soldiers removed their cloaks and revealed their weapons and their swords. My response to their insubordination of these Jews was swift. It was stern. It was bloody. They refused to bend. So I broke them. So when they brought that man, that righteous man, that Jesus from Nazareth before my judgment seat, there was no way I would give them what they wanted. They brought him here not for a trial. They'd already taken care of a trial. Their council, the Sanhedrin, had already tried him, as they have every right to do. It's rare that I even ever hear of such proceedings. This was different. This was a capital case, and I have final veto power in all capital cases. They can't put a man to death without my approval. And I relish that tiny bit of authority I have over them. They had no case against this man either. I knew that soon enough. So I looked forward to vetoing their sentence. I looked forward to letting this righteous man go free. 
but they resisted again. Of course they did. And when I sensed that this man's death was so important to them, expedient to their purposes, it only served to make me want to fight them, to resist them more. This time, by Caesar, they would bend. It was his silence that gave him away. His silence that proved he was no threat to the emperor. I've tried traitors before, instigators, agitators, insurrectionists. They're anything but silent. It's difficult to silence them, in fact. They usually go on and on, railing against Rome in favor of their cause. They're full of threats and bombast. But this man, none of that. He was no traitor. It seemed like he was living in or coming from another world. Whatever they had against him, it was no threat to Rome. And I told him that. I find no fault in him, I said. But those stubborn leaders, they wouldn't yield. Even after I had the man flogged, even after I had him publicly humiliated, severely punished, they refused to bend. Till finally they resorted again to threats. You're no friend of Caesar, they said, their coy, clawing way of reminding me of the standards fiasco and their not-so-subtle way of threatening to bring this case to and my unwillingness to bend to them to the ears of Tiberius yet again. No, I didn't condemn that righteous man. His trial was over. His fate was sealed before he'd ever been brought before me. He didn't die by my hand. I've washed my hands of his blood. They killed him. They're the guilty ones. That's the truth. Or is it? As I consider what I could have, what I should have done, I am tormented by a restless sleep. The question I asked him still haunts me now. What is truth? I didn't kill that man. That is the truth. But this is true as well. I didn't spare him his life either. I offer a few thoughts about Pontius Pilate to you this evening. I'm not aware of anyone who would consider Pontius Pilate a hero of Scripture. But his position on the hero-villain continuum has often been difficult to locate. Some see him as the ultimate symbol of oppression and political power. Others see him as more or less innocent and doomed, a doomed pawn of Rome and the Hebrew religio-political forces. Damned if he did, Damned if he didn't. And as tonight's monologue makes clear, he he went to great lengths to proclaim his innocence. 
as politicians throughout history have done when faced with heinous accusations of crimes. There's a lot to consider, and like so many people, this either-or paradigm of hero, hero or villain fails to capture the nuance of his role in this particular part of human history. However, my opinion is that everything we need to know about Pontius Pilate and the extent to which he bears the guilt of crucifying Jesus, the Son of God, is revealed in his words, what is truth? There's a danger in misinterpreting Scripture when we determine whether or not a phrase is said out of sincerity. Perhaps with a little bit of sarcasm instead. Pilate could have been genuinely, philosophically curious when he asked Jesus, what is truth? Or he could have offered it in a condescending retort. What is truth? Either way, what is clear is that he was not attuned to truth or else he would have recognized Jesus for who he was. The embodiment of truth. Though to be completely honest, I tend to think Pilate's remark was ripe with sarcasm. I doubt someone like that had much use for truth. He was too preoccupied with worldly power and ambition to worry about things as inconsequential as truth. And that right there is the invitation for us today. What are we preoccupied with? What is it that blinds us from the truth of Jesus Christ? What is it in our daily lives that keeps us from seeing the light of Christ? The list is endless. And the challenge is how do we become aware of truth that we are blind to? Well, we took one step in the right direction earlier this evening when we engaged in the liturgy of confession and forgiveness. Whether it's on a Wednesday or a Sunday morning, regular old Sunday or a high holy day, the confession that we provide in the course of a worship service is not an exhaustive list of the ways that we have sinned against God and one another. Rather, it's an invitation to think deeply about the extent to which each one of us is blind to God's truth in our daily lives. The five seconds or so of silence that we hold right before we say our corporate confession, it's not enough time for us to discover those hidden truths, for those to be revealed to us. In the words of forgiveness that we convey on behalf of God to you, it's not meant to bring that exercise of repentance to a close. That whole thing is it's simply a model that we practice in worship 
so that we can continue to confess our sin and receive grace in our daily lives. Our task is to daily remember our baptism and daily remember God's loving claim on our lives. And as we remember our identity as God's beloved image bearers of the divine, we allow God's light to shine on our blind spots, revealing the truth that would otherwise stay hidden. Pontius Pilate is an example of how one's inability to tend to truth in one's life can have deadly consequences. Pilate's no hero. He's no villain. He's each one of us. And the extent to which we admit that opens up the truth of God's love and grace in immeasurable and life-giving ways. Let us pray. Holy God, the source of truth and love, inspire your creation to seek the truth in all circumstances by asking the necessary and profound questions of ourselves, others, and you. Teach us humility and curiosity. Lessen our wayward dependence on fallible political leaders and those who seek to lead us astray in order just to claim more power for themselves. Guide your people in ways of justice and peace so that we may follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ our Lord even when those footsteps lead to crosses in our own lives. Amen.